themes, okay? Remember, introductions are always long, but introductions are absolutely essential for us to understand the letter. Because we are Americans in the 21st century who are trying to understand a letter written by Jews in a Greco-Roman world in the first century. And that's a huge chasm. And no matter how much I can learn and read and teach you, and you can learn and teach, there's still a great chasm because we weren't there and we weren't that. And so I believe that introductions are important in order to really understand what is going on in these verses. Now, there are three primary themes that dominate 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But before we talk about them, they're all encapsulated in this genre called wisdom literature. And we need to understand wisdom literature if we're going to understand 1st John. One of the reasons that many, many people struggle with 1st John is because they don't understand the genre that is being written in. If all you know is narrative, stories, uh, uh, a story that is told with a series of events and cause and effect relationships that are connected and told in such a way to communicate a purpose, right? And then he did this, and then he did this, and he did this, and he did this. But I'm not just randomly telling you everything he did. I p chose certain things and put it in such order in order to communicate a philosophical argument or a moral to the story or a purpose or a main idea or a point or a theme, right? That's what narrative is. So narrative is very, you, you, you see what you get. When you read that he went up the tree and he looked out in the forest and he saw this, that's, you can pretty much count on that. That's what pretty much happened, right? And if all you understand is narrative and you think that everything that's ever been written is narrative, and then you come to poetry and you read it with the rules of narrative, you're going to be really struggling. You're going to be confused, right? The ground laments and the olive tree cries. I am in such pain that my body is wasting away. And you're like, what? This is a crazy world, right? And metaphors. Everybody was doing it. She broke my heart, right? I've used this many, many times. No, she did not reach into your chest and grab your heart and pull it out of your ribcage and then break it in half, right? That would be a sadistic. But if you read poetry or a Hallmark card... <laughs> With narrative way of thinking, you're going to be very confused. This is no longer a, a sad lament of a breakup between a boyfriend and girlfriend. This is a horror movie. And that changes your perspective tremendously. And so you need to understand that just like narrative is genre, poetry is a genre, apocalyptic literature is a genre, so is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is a genre. And in wisdom literature, wisdom literature is polar opposites. And there is no in-between. There's right and wrong, period. There's light and darkness, period. There's up and down, and period. There's nothing in between. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. It's either this or that. You're either with God or you're not. You're either obeying God or you're not. You're either righteous or you're wicked. We struggle with that as Americans because we don't understand wisdom literature. It's not a big part of our American culture. It's one of those kind of genres that the American culture is kind of left behind. And so when we read things like the righteous do this and the wicked do this, we're like, ah, I don't feel like I'm righteous. Like I've got this sin and this selfishness in my life and I, I'm not, I don't look exactly like that. 
But I'm not wicked either, right? I'm not Genghis Khan and Hitler and a serial killer and all that kind of stuff. I don't fit like that. But, but when I read this, but when I read this narrative, God is saying like the righteous do this, and I'm like I'm not that, and the wicked do this, and I'm like I can kind of relate to that, but I'm not that, right? Like I feel like I have love and I love Jesus and that kind of stuff. And then we be are we tormented? Am I really saved now, right? Because we don't understand His wisdom. I don't understand his wisdom literature. For John, you're either completely righteous or you're completely wicked. Wisdom literature. Now, John can write narrative. It's called the Gospel of John, where there is lots of gray area. But he also can write wisdom literature. It's called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And even Revelation falls into that. Not as tightly as 1st, 2nd, and John, but it does. And so for wisdom literature, you're either righteous or you're wicked. I'll give you an example. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 is two genres coming together. It's poetry and wisdom literature. So it's highly metaphorical, but it's also wisdom literature. So for example, how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners. By stand in the pathway, he means like walks in their shoes walks along the path, like the opposite of walking with God. They're walking and standing in the same path that the sinners are. Or sit in the assembly of scoffers, that they sit with scoffers and they scoff at righteous people along with all the other people. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying Yahweh's commands. He meditates on the commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at its proper time and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts, not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like wind-driven chaff. Chaff is that little fuzzy stuff, or the cat whisker things on the, the edge of grain that kind of comes off, and it would just it's lighter than grain, it would blow away in the wind. For this reason, the wicked cannot withstand judgment, nor can sinners join the assembly of godly. Certainly Yahweh guards the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. Now, welcome to wisdom literature. How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked. Ooh, I've followed the advice of wicked people at different times, right? I've gotten caught up into the message of the media. I've gotten caught up in the message of friends that I probably shouldn't have hung out with, and I follow their advice. Or I buy, In fact, many of us have philosophies that are deeply rooted in our mind that are guiding our decision-making that we're not even aware how pagan and ungodly it is. And some of us have been woken up to some of those, and there's more of it for us to be woken up to, right? You know, like, oh my gosh, that's not... I am following the advice of the wicked. Or stand in the pathway of sinners. Well, I have definitely walked in sin. I've got addictions. I've got vices. I've got things that I've done, right? Or sit in the... Mo- I, I've kind of made fun of good people. I've made jokes at their expense. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying God's commands. I don't always have pleasure in obeying God. Sometimes I'm like, this sucks. Right? This is hard. I really just like to watch a lot of movies. I don't want to do this right now. He meditates on the commands day and night. Oh, yeah, that's definitely me, right? I always meditate on God's commands day and night, nonstop. He is like a tree flowing by streams. Oh, my streams are not always pure that I'm rooting into in my life and my thinking. It yields fruit all the time and its leaves never wither. Yeah, there are times that the fruit that I produce has been rotten, and it is time that my leaves have 
right enough, right? But the psalm says, you're either this or you're not. The wicked sin, and they scoff at the righteous, and they take the advice of other wicked people. But righteous people always produce good fruit. They always meditate on the word of God. There is no middle ground here. It's very clear that this is the wicked to do. And this is, but not so. It will, not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like windblown chaff. They're just blown around willy-nilly with every philosophy that comes along. They're like, ooh, pretty. And what happens to the wicked? They are destroyed. But the righteous will live forever. And then you're like, oh, crap. Maybe I'm not saved. Right? We've all felt that. We've all read passages like this and we're like, I'm so screwed. There's a part of me who does not completely relate to this. I don't feel like I'm that wicked. But this is so black and white that I don't know what to do with it except feel guilty and wonder if I may be actually saved. But that's wisdom literature. And we need to read it and interpret it as wisdom literature. So what is the point of wisdom literature? That's the real thing that you need to understand. The point of wisdom literature is say, this is what righteousness actually looks like. Truly righteous people will not do this ever. Right? Righteousness means you're right before God. So if you're right before God, there's nothing that is not right. And the right, right? When, the, when the, the, the man came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He didn't mean that I'm not good. He meant, do you really know what you're calling me? <laughs> Jesus says, only the righteous can inherit the kingdom of God. And the most righteous person they knew was a Pharisee. So he said, it's harder for a Pharisee to get into the kingdom of God than a camel through the eye of a needle. And they're like, oh my gosh, if they can't make it, I'm screwed. Because only righteous people go to heaven. Only people who are without sin can be in the presence of God, right? When Adam and Eve were without sin, they were in the presence of God. When they sinned, they were kicked out of the presence of God, period. Nobody is in heaven. Every vision of the First Testament, nobody's in heaven because they're not righteous. For all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, and therefore you're... Hell is your destination. And so what the wisdom literature says is this, this, this is the only way into heaven. This is the only way to be righteous. This is what it truly looks like. And everything else is wickedness. <coughs> but it's not saying that you all have to be that. What it's saying is that's the standard. D.A. Carson uses the example when he was in school. He's a great scholar um, who I've used a lot in this commentary. When he was in school, he had a teacher who abhorred chew gum chewing in his classroom. One day he it, found a kid who was chewing gum. And he pulled the trash can, put it right underneath the kid's jaw, and held it there and said, spit it out. And as he was spitting it out, he says, there is no chewing gum in my classroom. And that's what he would say every time he found something chewing gum. Now, obviously, he's wrong because there literally was gum chewing in his classroom. But what he was saying is that my classroom is not a classroom where that happens. True, my true classroom, that doesn't happen. And his goal was to get to that ideal. 
That is a true classroom where there's no chewing gum. My classroom, there's no chewing class gum. Therefore, if you're doing that, you're not a part of what it means to be a part of this classroom. And you either need to stop doing that or leave the classroom. Because in this classroom, there's no chewing gum. It's not saying that it never happens. It's just saying this is not what this classroom is. Therefore, you either cease or you leave. And that's what wisdom literature is. It's this huge ideal that that's the bar. That's what's expected of you to be saved. That's the only way that you can get into the presence of God. That's the only way that you can have true fellowship with God. And if you're not hitting that bar, you don't have true fellowship. You're not in the presence of God. You can't get into heaven. Where does the narrative come in? The narrative is the gray area. The narrative is that David is called a man after God's own heart, but he violates a woman sexually and kills her husband. The narrative is Abraham, who's declared to be righteous, but he's passing his wife off to, to a man in order to save his own skin, and then sleeping with another woman to produce Ishmael, and then lying about all of it. Narrative is Solomon, who's following God, and we're told that Solomon was incredibly pleasing to God in his obedience, and then we're immediately told that he's marrying an Egyptian woman that he should have never married, that he's, that he's, that he's sacrificing at a place that he's not allowed to sacrifice. And what narrative shows you is that God gets that none of you can meet that mark. None of you can meet that righteous standard. But because he loves you so much, he will give you grace and mercy. And ultimately, he will send his son to die on the cross to allow you to have entrance because now you can enter the presence of God if you're covered by the blood of Christ because Christ's life is perfectly righteous. But here's where the two come together. Wisdom literature says that is what's necessary to get into heaven. But narrative says, but I know you can. That's why I have grace and mercy for you. And I will provide a means for you to get there because you can't meet that mark. So where do they come together? They come together because what narrative does is it assures me. Okay, God doesn't expect absolute perfect obedience and perfection all the time because I'm not capable of it. And he loves me so much that he has given me grace and mercy to come into his presence and experience his fellowship. Oh, that's an easy yoke and a light burden. But then should we sin all the more so grace can abound? Paul asked in Romans. Do we get relaxed and think it's not that big deal? I'm saved. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner and I'm struggling, but everybody sins and everybody struggles and I'll never be perfect. And so we just start getting relaxed and lazy and compromising. And the next thing we know, certain vices and addictions are coming back into our life. And what wisdom literature says, no, 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 no. That is still what is necessary. That is what it, because yes, you are saved. But the more and more and more that you begin to lean on narrative literature as the full basis of what it means to get into heaven, the less and less fellowship you're going to have with God. And the less fellowship you have with God, the less you're going to have joy and hope. Right? I can be married to somebody who will never, ever, ever leave me. And I can be assured that our marriage will last forever. 
But that doesn't mean I will always have a good, loving fellowship with them if I'm just treating them like crap, going off and doing whatever I want, talking to them poorly. They might be really committed because of their character and their commitment to be with me no matter what, but we're going to have a really bad relationship for many years. And then eventually people are going to look at us and think, are you even connected in any kind of a way? And so what wisdom literature reminds you of is the ultimate goal is not just to get out of this into paradise. The ultimate goal is to be with God in an intimate relationship. And so narrative rela- narratives assure me that I can be saved despite not being perfect. But wisdom literature reminds me that I want fellowship. And that's what I need to aim for. And though I need to strive for that, that's impossible without the cross and without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, I will never get there in this life until Christ comes back again and resurrects me. But because I want to be with God so much, I will do everything I can through obedience and discipleship and prayer and repentance and Bible reading to become as much as the righteous who is firmly planted in streams and never sits in the path of sinners and never mocks its righteous and never takes the advice of wicked. Does that kind of make sense? And so we're going to come to statements where John will say, God is light and in him there is no darkness. Therefore, if you claim to walk in the light, you must have no darkness in you. And you're like, I'm screwed. But what John is saying is, no, 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 no. Don't get lackadaisical. Don't get laid back in your salvation. Don't start falling into these false teachings. Don't get absorbed slowly and drift into the culture. Because your ultimate desire is to have fellowship with God. And fellowship with God means walking in the light and not having darkness. And the less darkness you have, the more fellowship you have. And the quicker you repent of that darkness, the more fellowship you have. And that's how we need to understand John as wisdom literature. We cannot read this and think, I am not saved. We need to read it and say, thank God that I am saved. But I want more of who God is. And so I'm not content with what I was when I first came to Christ and salvation. I want more. Not because I need to be perfect to be pleasing to God. Not because I can save myself, but because I want to know him more. The same reason I've worked very hard in my relationship with my kids and my wife. Not because I've arrived, but because I just want something more. And the other days I still want to walk away. (laughs) Or not walk away completely, just need to have some peace and quiet in a room by myself, right? So these are the themes. So we need to understand these themes this way. So for John, the two, they're opposite. There's, there's these polarities. And, and the first polarity is light and darkness. God is light and darkness is sin. In the Bible, light is used as to symbolize the presence of God and his self-disclosure, purity, and holiness. God's word is light and Jesus is the light of the world. Darkness is used to symbolize evil and sin and rebellion. So in the beginning of John, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then later he says, The word came into the darkness, but the darkness did not accept nor receive the light. The word was light, sorry. The word was the light of mankind. And the light came into the darkness, but the darkness did not accept nor receive him. There you have a little bit of wisdom literature right there in the narrative. 
And what John is saying is, Jesus is the light, and the world as itself is the darkness. Not in a Gnostic, dualistic sense, but in a fallen rebellion sense. And so these are the contrasts. At the beginning of 1 John, John states this. The next verse states that one cannot say that he belongs to God, yet live in the darkness. Since these contradict each other with the coming of the light, who is Jesus, says that the darkness is now passing away because the light is shining. So the ultimate goal is, yes, there's now this darkness and light, but the whole idea of the light is to drive the darkness away. And so just like in creation, God says there was evening and there was morning. The day began with darkness, but it always ends with light because God is redeeming it. And so John says the same thing. You've been in darkness, but now the light has come, and it will begin to redeem it. And every moment that you're with Christ is another shifting from one end of the spectrum to the other, from darkness to light. When they either belongs in the light or they belongs in the darkness. And they are judged according to whether they're in the light or the darkness. And this is centered on their claims about the Son of God and their actions. You'll know them by the way that they treat each other. You'll know them by the way that they believe. The one who says, I'm in the light, but continue to pursue darkness, they're the liar. The true person who walks with God is in the light, and when they do things that are darkness, they do everything they can to get out of the darkness and back in the light. Repentance, obedience, confession, reconciliation. But the one who just keeps walking in the darkness, but says, I'm in the light, and I know God, they're the liar. You will know them by their fruit. This is what John is saying. The next theme is love and hate. For John, there is no in-between. And for John, it's not love and apathy. I know everybody's like, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And that's true, but for John, it's hate. Because for John, even apathy is hate. Because apathy is seeing somebody in need, and you're apathetic towards them, which means you're not going to help them, so you might as well hate them. Because if you're apathetic and you're not helping them, then that means you don't care about them, which means you are okay with horrible, bad things happening to them, which is very malicious and very hateful. And so for John, the opposite of love is hate. Apathy is hate. It's a hate by not doing anything. And so John will say things like, if you see somebody in need, you're like Cain, a murderer, if you do not help them. Now that's convicting. Even just seeing somebody in need and walking by them is hate for John. Now remember, John is not saying, you're a hateful man and a hateful woman. He's saying that action is an action of hate. It's an action of not love. It's an action of darkness. And a true believer has love. Even sacrificial love, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this is the idea. Jesus gives you the example. The one who walks in the darkness are the people who come to the man beaten up on the side of the road, and they walk by because they've got more important things to do. Or it might defile them. The priest has a good example. I can't help him. 
If I touch him, then I won't be able to go into the temple of God and do sacrifices for the people and atone sins. This is a very noble thing I do. I cannot atone for sins if I touch this man and become unclean and defiled because I won't be allowed in the temple. And then all these people won't be able to have atonement for sins because I can't do the sacrifices. I can't touch them. That sounds very noble and true why I'm going to pass the man who's beaten up. But for John, the man who walks in the light is the man who risks everything to take care of the being beaten up on the road, even though that man hates him because they're from different cultures. This is the point that John develops this love-hate contrast. Those who claim to be in the light yet hate their brother are liars. He keeps coming back to this word liar, liar, liar. The third thing that we see is belief and unbelief. You either believe or you don't. There is no, I believe God, but help me with my unbelief. In wisdom literature, that doesn't make sense. You either do or you don't. Narrative says, I get that some days are hard. Wisdom literature says, no. John employs three sets of images to demonstrate genuine belief. Claiming to have fellowship with God and living by the truth and walking the light. So there are three images that he will use to demonstrate true belief. What you claim and what you do, living, and then walking, continuous action. And so he will constantly use these words, claiming, walking, and living, to demonstrate true belief. Belief is not just an intellectual thing that you buy into. Belief is something that will produce living and walking. First John states that if one says he believes in God and knows him, but does not keep his commandments, then he is a liar and the truth is not in him. For John, you will obey the commandments. Now once again, you can't do it perfectly, but that's not wisdom literature. But because you're believing in God, you'll want to do it perfectly, and you'll pursue everything. Now once again, I'm just giving you the basics here. When we get into 1 John chapter 1 and 2, John will really, he will take the narrative gray and the wisdom black and white, and he will start weaving them together for you. Right now, I'm just laying out the basic principles. But when we get into the first two chapters, we'll get into the nitty-gritty detail of how this like gray area, but the black and white wisdom literature really truly comes together and assuring you. Because I know probably some of you right now are like, okay, I understand wisdom literature, but this still isn't giving me a whole lot of assurance. And if they're feeling that, that's totally legit. I get it. Right now, we're just laying ideas out. First chapter and second chapter will help us begin to see it practically working and how, under, how to understand it. So the idea is that he says they're a liar. This is demonstrated by the secessionists. The word secessionists are the false teachers who leave the church. So what you see is you're going to have false teachers that are still in the church, and you're going to have false teachers that have just walked away from the church completely. They become so much better than everybody else and so enlightened that they're like, I just don't need you anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm just going to do my own thing. And so they have left the church. And John's going to have this crazy statement that if they truly were among us and believed with us, they would have stayed with us. But the fact that they left us shows that they didn't belong to us because by leaving, they're not among us. Okay? And it makes sense, but it's very redundant. But the point is, true believers don't leave because every epistle writer, James, Peter, 
John, Paul, the one thing that they all have in common, the one thing that they beat more than anything, is that the true believer perseveres in the faith. The true believer finishes the race. It doesn't say how quickly you run, how perfectly you run, how few times you stumble. It doesn't say whether there's times that you doubted, whether you fell and sleep in the poppy fields that were not for a while. It just says the true believer actually finishes the race. They persevere. They're going to show that they didn't really ever believe because they left us. They walked away from the community of believers. The first use of the word believe, pistuo, is used in 1 John chapter 3, 23, which states that God's commands is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. For John, that is the essential of belief, truth of who Jesus is and love, fellowship. Therefore, if you're at least embracing the truth and have love, then you can be assured. Those are the themes. The last thing we're going to talk about is the structure. Identifying the structure of John is really difficult. The Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is a very simplistic elementary Greek. In fact, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are very elementary Greek. Many scholars believe that John probably had help writing the Gospels of John. It was his words, his ideas, that maybe he had an editor. Because the Greek is not the most polished. Paul's writings are the most polished Greek. But you definitely see the evidence of a non-professionally schooled his entire life fisherman kind of a Greek happening. But 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, one of the things that makes some people think that John was not written by, or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John was not written by the disciple John, is because the Greek is even more elementary in a lot of ways. The, 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 the sentences in the Greek are very simple syntactically, meaning the way that they're structured grammatically. There's a, a very lack of connective conjunctions, a lot of missings, buts, ands, thus, therefore, the things like conjunction, junction, what's your function, a lot of that is missing. Likewise, there's a lack of discernible sequence of thought. There doesn't seem to, he, he seems to be like an ADHD child. Okay, just going from thought to here to here to here to here is not as organized and structured as other letters. It's he, he seems to wander around a lot. Now that could be a result of he was not good at putting ideas together in very fluid ways like Paul, but yet God used him anyways. Obviously he has for second, third John are powerful letters. Or it could be that he was so emotionally distraught what was happening in the churches that some of his la- wandering has more of an emotional um, it can be explained more of an emotional angst that he feels of what's happening to his church than it is a lack of capability. We don't know. Okay, those are possibilities. But the reality of all this poor grammar, um, lack of themes that have flows, the wandering of thoughts makes it hard to build a good outline. Lots of scholars have debated how to do the outline. Do we, do we base it on literary themes? Do we base it on grammatical structure? Do we base it on principal ideas? And there's a lot of debates. But probably the best way to do it is themes. And there, there are a couple of scholars. Um, Raymond E. Brown was one of the first scholars who really looked at the writings of John and noticed that the themes are very similar to the Gospel of John. 
And even though the themes of first, second, third John tend to wander a lot and go from here to here to here to here, they still largely followed the themes that were developed in the Gospel of John. And they, 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 there's a very strong, it might be a distorted, kind of rubbed, smeared version of that structure, but it's still there. And it makes sense because these false teachers have taken the Gospel of John that begins with, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the Greek Christians coming into the church said, yes, amen, we love that. But they kind of stopped reading where the Logos became flesh. And so they took a lot of John's writings and selectively picked things from them to fit their theology. And so it seems that John is following the same themes and structure that he did in the Gospel of John, in order to say, no, that's not what I meant. And he goes through the same outline again. Outline again. Kind of like when a student comes in and says, da, 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 and you're like, no, that's not at all what I said. And you kind of go through the outline again, but you teach in a different kind of a way because they obviously missed it the first time. But the structure's still the same. And, and so maybe the structure is, is distorted and flawed and, or not as polished, not flawed, not as polished because he's on his own now with no editor, or because he's so upset people misunderstood his life. We don't know. But there seems to be a mirror. And this is another thing that points to the fact that this is John, the disciple. And so following that structure, uh, um, a couple of people propose this hybrid. And, and Stephen Smalley proposed this hybrid between the outline of the Gospel of John, but also the emphasis on certain things that you must believe to be saved. That's the outline that we're going to work through. I'm not saying this is the only way to structure and outline the book. This just seems to be the most um, feasible right now that has been presented with scholarship. But basically, we can divide this book into two sections. Walking the light with Yahweh, Roman numeral one, and living as children of Yahweh, Roman numeral two. And within this, John is going to give a prologue in the first division, and he's going to give four conditions of what you must believe or do in order to be walking light of Yahweh. And then when we get to the second division, he's going to repeat those four conditions again, but add a fifth one. But the fifth one will be between three and four. So it'll be technically four, but it's the fifth edition. And he'll go through the same conditions again and say, and if you want to live as children of Yahweh, you must do these conditions. And so that's the structure we're going to follow, where John's going to say, if you say that you walk in the light, then you must meet these four conditions. And if you say that you are a child of Yahweh, then you must meet these five conditions, four of which are the same as the previous. But I'm just going to talk about them in a different way. And then he ends with a conclusion. And that conclusion is, and this is how you can be assured of your salvation. And that's the structure. Now, 2nd and 3rd John are very short. 2nd John is 13 verses, and 3rd John is 15 verses. So those are very short letters. Most scholars believe what's going to happen is with 2nd, 3rd John, we'll see him kind of reemphasize the same points again. In fact, he'll kick on truth and love even harder. And so most scholars believe that 2nd and 3rd John should be seen as chapters 6 and 7 of 1st John. So 1st John has five chapters, and basically what will happen is time will go by, and the false teachers have had even more influence. Um, more people have followed the false teachers and left the church. And the believers, the true believers, are more distraught. And then John comes in with chapter 6, 2 John, and continues to encourage them and refute the false teachers. 
And then when we get, then more time goes by and the false teachers have even more success, have led even more people away. The believers that are true are even fewer remnant and left in the church. And then chapter 7, 3 John comes along and John is writing basically trying to encourage a few believers to step up and support him in kind of dealing with a false person in particular. And we'll talk about that later. So most scholars believe that 2nd and 3rd John should be seen as chapters 6 and 7 of 1st John. So that's the outline we're going to follow as we go through the book. This is very important for you to understand the setting and the idea of what wisdom literature is and the purpose of what John is trying to accomplish so we can really get the most out of what he is saying in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. 